This is TechSnip, episode 387. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on October 11th, 2018. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is my fabulous co-host, Chris. Hello, Wes. I'm looking forward to chatting with our OpenStack expert a little bit later in the show. We have a ton of stuff to talk about today, but don't get ahead of yourself. There's plenty of content to come first. Let's get started with our first warm-up story. All right, this one's a follow-up on IEPFS, the interplanetary file system that Wes and John talked about recently. And it's a post from someone named James Stanley, and he talks about how his rig was used for phishing an IPFS gateway. He says, at 2.43 a.m. this morning, I received an abuse complaint email. It was sent by Fish Labs to DigitalOcean, and then DigitalOcean forwarded on to me. A little bit of backstory here. James is running an IPFS gateway on a DigitalOcean droplet. So, of course, you know, the role of that gateway is to serve IPFS content over the regular HTTP-based internet. That's a pretty neat thing you can do with IPFS, and Cloudflare recently started doing this on a much larger scale, but anyone could do it on a system that they run. And you have to kind of imagine when you do run something like this, you might attract some attention you don't always want. But I think James was surprised by this phishing email simply because he wasn't running a website. And that's what the email said. Your website is under investigation. And he's thinking to myself, wait a minute, there's no website here on this machine. Now, just after getting this email from DigitalOcean saying, hey, James, uh, there's some problems with your quote-unquote website, well, DigitalOcean disabled the network interface to his VPS. So James decided to take a look and figure out, well, okay, just what is this so-called phishing attack? pulled up the URL in question, and what do you get but a Google sign-in, or what looks like a Google sign-in page. We've seen these all over the place, right? You just get your victim in some email or a link you set over Slack to think they're signing into a Google service when, in fact, those credentials go right to you. A link over Slack, eh, Wes? Hmm. Revealing something I'm not clicking anything. (laughs) So as James investigates, a couple things started looking a little bit Odd, And the first is there's a big, long URL fragment of random-looking text at the end of the URL. Now, at first, he kind of thought, well, maybe this is some sort of, you know, they had like an encrypted part of the message or the website, and then that's just a key that's pasted along to decrypt the content, Mm. something like that. In fact, no. Taking a closer look at the HTML source, it mentions a site called toast.bitty.site. Now, you probably don't know what that is. I didn't. It's one of these newfangled, actually, it's not that new, but it's a concept that's been kind of popularized recently, which is, it's like a URL shortener, except you can take a whole website and boil it down to a single link. Oh, how handy. Right, so you you end up with a site that can read, you know, what address you've given it. It takes that data, decodes it, and renders it in the browser for you. Okay, okay. So, in fact, that random-looking text is a regular website compressed with LZMA and then encoded as Base64. That's actually pretty neat. Yeah, it is a clever technique, and there's all kinds of benign and entertaining use cases for this fun little tech. But of course, sometimes there's malicious use cases as well. In this case, though, it's a little bit of a gray area because after you decode the content of the site, all it is is a redirect. It sends you to a OneDrive site that's hosting gma.html. So Mm. what we've got here is an IPFS hash. Okay, let me interrupt you for a second and have you just explain this so I actually make sure I have this because it sounds like 
there's a compressed URL involved, there's a OneDrive site involved, and there's this guy's droplet involved. How does it break down? There's a lot going on. Okay, so James has a droplet running an IPFS gateway. Some fisher out there sends you an email with a link to it. No relation. That link goes to his IPFS gateway and requests a specific IPFS hash, which is then returned by the gateway. That hash contains the code necessary to implement expanding these compressed web pages, and the link to that IPFS page includes additional arguments at the end that is the actual content of the phishing page. So IPFS is not hosting any of the phishing content. It's just hosting a generic mechanism that can decode compressed sites. And that's where this gets into something of a gray area because really the hash and the content on IPFS, there's there's really no reason to block it. It's just being exploited to host bad content. So the core of it, the actual malicious content is being stored on that OneDrive site. Exactly. The compressed site in the URL, that's just a redirect. Well, why not combine it all into one? So the phishing content, all of it, is in the compressed site, and the OneDrive site isn't even in the picture. That is a good question, because right now there's another avenue of attack, right? OneDrive could and hopefully will take down this content eventually, thus killing the attack. I suspect that some browsers out there limit the sizes, the maximum sizes of URLs acceptable, and probably with all the JavaScript and markup that goes on to imitating in a, you know, a good imitation of a Google login page, it's probably just over that limit. And so in the meantime, James is forced to block content that by its nature isn't malicious, but is being used by somebody for malicious purposes. Exactly. And that's probably the responsible thing to do in this case. But it, it's kind of unfortunate, and it does expose a little bit of a gray area. Probably things we'll see more of as IPFS continues to be used. That's what I was just thinking. Let's continue on with our warm-ups and take a bit of a practical turn. Yerge has a new blog post advocating how to scale teams by writing things down. And that might sound obvious, but it really is essential as your organization grows. You have a lot of culture, you have a lot of knowledge that just not everyone's going to know once you're beyond, you know, the 10 people that you work and sit next to. And it's not always easy to get that right. This one kind of hits close to home for us right now because we are learning Linux Academy's processes for project creations and the way they document things and the way they have stakeholders that get assigned to particular tasks and all of that. And the process of writing things down is one that we all nod our head and go, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, this is perhaps a little more compelling because Gergay is pretty experienced with this stuff. And he's recently been taking small and mid-sized companies and visiting them and sharing engineering best practices that he uses at Uber, which he recommends any tech company adopts as they are growing. And there's one topic or two in particular that tends to raise eyebrows. And he's got some good experience to back these opinions up. He mentioned some specific examples and really some things that I mean, I can I can agree with this as well. Some problems you see related to planning that you especially see at larger companies. Things like lack of visibility on what other teams are working on. It's really easy to get siloed, but you may actually need to communicate because you're building the same thing or you just have knowledge that could benefit the other party. The other big one is that, well, you just get technical debt when different teams build things in different ways and then they just don't match up very well. Yeah, that is definitely something that we're trying to avoid right now as we are changing and replumbing and automating some of our systems here at Jupiter Broadcasting's production area. And Linux Academy is making some plumbing changes on their back end. And we want to make sure the two sync up and that they're complementary and that we're not off building our own fiefdoms and our own silos. 
now obviously those are those are some pretty reasonable and I think important goals to aim for, but they can be kind of intimidating. Thankfully, your guy's got some some tips for us. And it starts off with do planning before building something new. This can just be in-person whiteboarding, talking it through with a team member in a Slack channel, whatever whatever it is to get things started out in the open so that it's not just your idea. There's a lot of tools to facilitate this now that you, you can just pick from the one that fits you the best. And there's another there's another approach that I've just recently started thinking about these planning meetings is also have a conversation about what could make the project fail. What is the weakest point, the weakest link, if you will, of the project? What could kill it? And then how do we make up uh, accommodation plans for those particular issues? So there's a good phase for the team to start chatting about those things too. As you're doing that, tip number two here is capture this in a short written document. You don't have to go full bore right off the gate. Just get things started. Pick a place for this to live, be that an internal wiki or GitHub, wherever. Yeah, I think the key here is don't go overboard. Just make sure it's clear and it's captured somewhere that is accessible. The next tip I think is somewhat common and is is good advice. A lot of companies already have some sort of regular meeting or team of more senior engineers who can review ideas that are coming up, potential products or solutions to, to problems. So have a few select people approve the plan before actually getting started. You know, run it by some people who've been there for a while or or the various stakeholders involved and make sure that you're on a good footing before you've invested a lot of work. That stakeholder term gets thrown around here and there. And it's it's an unfortunate business term that actually works because you do have people that have a stake in the outcome. And so it's worth getting them to see the project and getting them to say, okay, yeah, I buy off on this. A lot of companies will have an internal process for this. But the other thing that'll often happen is something will get caught that got missed. That just recently happened with a project here. It's, it's something that'll be listener-facing. It'll be a, you know, a nice change, an improvement. Uh, but I completely had spaced one particular set of requirements. Just completely didn't think about it, and somebody else was able to catch those. We got it factored in, and before we even started, we caught the air, and now it'll just be part of the scope. Beautiful. I think that's also a good time if you are an engineer developing for customers that you don't interact with to get a customer representative involved, someone who can speak to what the customer might want. It's often neglected in engineering-only meetings. The thing that he pushes for here in his top five things to do, number four is send the planning document out to all the engineers in the company, let everyone comment on it. Uh, geez, that really feels like it could slow things down. Like that's a bit of a balance. Like in some circumstances, that definitely feels appropriate. But in other circumstances you could get people arguing about the color blue for the next week. And he acknowledges that's the part that probably sounds the most crazy out of all of the tips. But for any of this to work, you're also going to have to make sure that everyone follows these steps for any project that's beyond some sort of, you know, super trivial bug patch or small little utility. If you're making something new that's going to ship to production, this is probably the process that you need. I think a bit like flossing Planning is seen like documentation. It's something we all know we should be doing, but there's a natural tendency to just want to skip it for efficiency. We all know what needs to be done, so let's skip the planning and just get to work. But my experience now has shown me that it's the opposite. You can actually save quite a bit of time by making that initial plan. It just doesn't have to be crazy. It just has to be specific. Make like a minimum viable plan and then get everybody to agree to that. And that, in the long term, saves time. Not just that. It can also help break down communication silos between teams. And that kind of comes back to the crazy send an email to all the engineers in the company idea. It does seem a little bit crazy. I think 
And and Gergay has a good example of from his time at Uber. If you build things like templates, maybe a little simple web form, a standard email subject line, some systems to make it easy to filter that email, you can solve some of the potential problems and have a lot of benefits. Things like making it really easy to see what's going on on other teams. I've had the problem in, in some of my past jobs where you, you're just isolated. You work on what you work. No one really explains what's going on. But if you have a standardized process, maybe that even has a template or something where mm. you can get a quick glance at a form. You can get an idea for what is this project? Why does it matter? What are they trying to do? How does it mesh with what I'm doing? I like that because that means I could also set up a filter in my inbox. So that way it's not, it doesn't feel like spam. Like when I'm ready to review those, there's a spot to go to. Yeah, it's not necessarily extra work, but it's a way for you to be engaged with the community that you're a part of. If anything we've said here has registered with you at all, I encourage you to check out the link in the show notes, techsnap.system slash 387. The author goes into more detail about how this was successful at Uber, and that part there is worth a read, which we didn't have time to get into today because there's one more warm-up story that Wes wanted to talk about this week. Well, since we've been talking so much about containers and Kubernetes on recent TechSnap episodes, and later on in this episode, we'll be talking about OpenStack, I thought, let's talk about some technology that's up and coming and sits right in between those two topics, and Mm. that's Kata containers. Oh, you have my interest peak, sir. Now, Chris, you may remember Intel's Clear containers. There's also a similar technology from Hyper called RunV, and these were both projects aimed to use the security isolation technology we've spent years developing for virtualization to help contain containers. I recall. And you probably also have seen that, well, containers on Linux are exploding and have come a long way, well, there have been just a few security vulnerabilities on that road. Yeah, and there's also just been a general effort to be able to run containers in virtualization so they could run on different host systems, like Linux containers on Windows systems, or etc. There's, a, there's, a, there's several needs to be able to do that. Not just security, but definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's where Kata Containers kind of bridges the gap between traditional full-scale virtual machines and all the benefits we've come to love from containers, right? Like more focused workloads, really small little images. This mm-hmm. idea that you can kind of, instead of running multiple VMs, you orchestrate individual services and you don't have to think about all the, all the stuff in the middle. Right. Well, how does, how does Kata help with that? When you use Kata Containers, every container you run is actually booted just right inside its own super lightweight VM. And a lot of this tech came from Intel's clear containers. They've done a lot of work to make these virtual machines boot super fast. They're Mm. super slimmed down. They don't have all those extra floppy disk controllers and other things you come to associate with QEMU. No, that's, that's a good project. People will respect that project quite a bit. Yeah, so it just boots up and it has just enough stuff to run a container in it. And it's it's all got things set up so that, you know, all the, all the networking, everything gets bridged. You have all the connections that you expect. Mm-hmm. There's a few of these out there, these distros, that are meant to be really slim distros to live in a container. And, uh, you know, they're all, they all suit their purpose. But Intel's is, is particularly well-respected because some of the engineers behind it are really well-known for creating great stuff. The other interesting aspect about content containers is it's really... It's built for the world of right now, and it's built for projects like Kubernetes. And that is because they have implemented a bunch of the interfaces Kubernetes uses. So once you've installed Kata Container support, if you've already got a cluster, you can configure nodes to use Kata Containers as the container runtime instead of something like Docker or other container runtimes. 
So the takeaway from what you're saying, Wes, is you don't have to manage something separately. This slots right in with your existing management tools that you're using. Right. Kubernetes doesn't know the difference. It talks exactly the same as it does to Docker, as it would to Kata, and it's meant to integrate into all the different life cycles of a Kubernetes application. So explain this point to me. Is this a birth of a new project? Are we seeing a merger here? Yes, we are. Intel's Clear Containers and Hyper's RunV came together and formed a totally new project, Kata Containers, and interestingly... It's under the OpenStack Foundation. Okay, so this is going to be one of OpenStack's solutions for containers? In a sense, it is It is working with OpenStack and it's part of the foundation, but we should be clear, it's not part of the project. So it stands on its own and you don't need to set up any OpenStack to use it. Ah, okay, good to know. I've got a bunch of questions about OpenStack, so why don't we bring in our OpenStack expert? We're lucky to be joined by OpenStack expert, Amy Marish. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Amy, you're not just an OpenStack expert. You're also one of the training architects at Linux Academy. And I've noticed when I was doing a little Googling on your name that you have a lot of connections to the OpenStack community. So tell us a little bit about what your connections are and your involvement with the project. So I'm a elected member of the user committee. So I'm the voice of users and operators to the foundation board as well as the technical committee. I serve as the chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group. And previously, I was the leader of the Women of OpenStack, which recently folded into the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group. As far as projects-wise, I am a core contributor and reviewer for the OpenStack Ansible project. That's, that's very impressive, and I've had a chance to chat with you in person about it, and you seem pretty passionate about the project, or about OpenStack. I shouldn't just refer to it as just the project in general. So I thought maybe we could start with some basics before we go off into the weeds and maybe just open it up with what is OpenStack? I mean, we understand there's many components, it's, but it's in part it's a project, in part there's a foundation. What, what, how do you define OpenStack? So OpenStack is a cloud computing infrastructure as a service that is under the OpenStack Foundation, which also covers other projects such as Wind River, Airship, and Kata Containers, as well as Zool. And Zool is actually some of the tooling and testing that we use for our own gating. So beyond that, OpenStack was started by Rackspace and NASA. And it started as two projects, Nova Compute, which was from NASA, and Cloud Files, which is now Swift, which came from Rackspace. And from there, different projects were added. Originally, networking was part of Nova. It was separated out into its own project, which is Neutron. And then we have Glance, which is image management. Cinder, which is block storage. Um, I already mentioned Swift. There's Trove, which is database. So there's a whole lot of projects to meet your different needs. And recently, we've got heavily into the containers, and we have the Magnum project, for example, which is recognized by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation as passing conformance. So if you run Magnum, while you still might need to go through their testing project, you are going to be certified on Magnum for Kubernetes. Wow, that that is a lot of capabilities. I, I can see why people are interested in in all of those different projects. I saw a lot of things to be excited about in the latest release, especially Ironic, the bare metal service. Do you know anything about that? And I'd also be curious, what is there anything in the latest release that you were particularly excited about? So Ironic is bare metal. It has been around actually for quite a while. 
And what it'll allow you to do is either you can deploy on VMs or just as easily deploy onto bare metal machines using your cloud. So if you have something that is very intensive computing-wise, you might want to go bare metal versus just a virtual machine. Some of the things we were excited about were, like in Cinder, we now have multi-attach, so the same volume can be attached to multiple instances. Um, as far as OpenStack Ansible, we added an NSpawn, so that's another container type for us. We are currently actually working on Gen 2 integration, so then we'll have Ubuntu, CentOS, OpenSUSE, and Gen 2 as possible operating systems that you can deploy OpenStack on using the OpenStack Ansible deployment project. Wow, that is, I'm just flabbergasted at the number of features that are available here. That's sort of the theme when I when I think about OpenStack, and I, that's why I was really excited to have Amy on, because ha having someone on who actually knows the names of all these things and where they fit helps us explain it better to the audience. And so I I appreciate that. Now, if I understand, if I'm following right, there's another release in the works called Rocky, Is that or it's out now? Rocky is already out, okay. and we're currently working on Stein. Stein. <laughs> okay. So what, what are some of the exciting things about Rocky, and can you tell us some of the great things about Stein? I mean, you don't have to go into great detail, but anything in particular that you're looking forward to? Well, Stein is currently our master branch, so it's pretty out there. Um, like I just mentioned, at least as far as OpenStack Ansible, Gen 2 is going to be part of that. Um, I've been doing some work for my latest course, which is going to be OpenStack and Containers, and have been talking to the Zune project, which came out of the Magnum project. And it's basically just containers, so no orchestration engine behind it. But they've got something that's going to be called Capsules, which is kind of released in Rocky, but it's not really ready to go. But the idea being that if you have like um, containers, they can be grouped together as part of a capsule. It seems like that can go a long way for if, you, if you're already familiar with working with Kubernetes, for instance, and you, and you have a couple containers you want to run together, Zune makes it really easy to just ship that off into production and get it running if you already have an OpenStack cluster. Am I right in that? Yeah, Zune makes it super easy as well as Magnum as well because Magnum actually supports your Kubernetes, your Docker Swarm, Mesos. So if you're using a container orchestration engine, you're going to go more towards Magnum than you will for um, just individual containers, which will be more Zune related. Okay, well, it sounds like OpenStack can compete in, in the bare metal world, obviously in the virtualization world, and in the new evolving container marketplace. If I get myself an OpenStack cluster, is, is, is that it? Do I need anything else to attach to that? Are there certain things I need to be aware of if I'm trying to set up a production private cloud? If you're doing a production private cloud, I mean, networking is going to be important to have the right networking coming in. And in everybody's data center, that's different. So when I've run private clouds in the past, you know, we had Cisco hardware in front of it. And, you know, based off of what we got from the data center, we then split it up to the different racks and so on. But a lot of the deployment projects are making it easier to deploy. So you basically say, this is my network. This is my internal network. This is the IPs of the servers I want to include. And you let that deployment project go and it's going to set everything up for you. So an example of that would, would be uh, OpenStack Ansible, is, is that right? Yeah. And you're involved with that project. Could you tell us a little bit about it? I've used Ansible myself and have been a, a fan of it. And I've also heard that OpenStack can be a 
bit of a bear to set up sometimes. Is that true? And if so, does OpenStack Ansible actually fix that? So the OpenStack Ansible was begun in Rackspace for their deployment of their private clouds. And basically what we do with all the individual projects, those are their own roles within OpenStack Ansible as the umbrella. So you can pick and choose which of the projects you need in your cluster. And of course, you're going to have your core projects, which are your Nova, Neutron, um, Glance, usually Cinder for your storage and so on. So basically you can say, hey, these are all the things I want in my cluster. You set up your infrastructure in a YAML file and just let it go. I guess I could use a point of clarification, Amy. So I understand that it's all modular. Is there a minimum required set of, of these modules to claim you have an OpenStack setup? Compute, networking, image, that's it. Hmm. Okay, that, that, is, that is actually relatively simple compared to what I thought your answer <laughs> might be. Okay, then I have one other just I have to ask Amy question. We were talking about it right before we started hitting record. I was, I was asking Wes, I said, Wes, what is Big Tent and where has it gone? And he started to explain. I thought, wait, let me ask Amy. I've heard the term when it comes to OpenStack. I've heard it's a, there's a, it's a Big Tent or there's a, what's, what's the phrase? A Big Tent initiative, Wes? What am I getting? Am I getting it right? And I, I wanted to ask him to, to clarify it for me, but I thought, let's talk to Amy because I don't even think it's a thing anymore. Yeah, so Big Tent was around 2015, 2016, and what was in the Big Tent was basically what we were considering core official projects. So as we were allowing more projects into the system, those that were more established were your Big Tent projects, and then you'd have like projects outside of the Big Tent that were just starting up and you know, beginning to form and hadn't really gone through the official acceptance project. The Big Tent really confused a lot of people, so it went away. Okay. And now what's is has something replaced it, or is it just the concept is gone? The concept is gone. Um, we do have a project map that has all the, what we consider the official projects on it. Ah, um, uh, okay. So it's more visually easier for someone who's looking into the project to realize what they might need, what is available to them. So it was really a conceptual framework that is just sort of had its time and now it's a different way of visualizing the project. That makes so much more sense than where I was going with it. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate the clarification. And also, you know, a little bit of governance was involved there. Oh. As in, you know, are you official or not? And, ah. you know, if you're official projects, you have to meet these standards and stuff. Very interesting. That leads to my next question Obviously, there's a lot going on. There's just an incredible breadth involved with OpenStack, and it's a project with a long history. How how do new developers get involved? Where do I go? I can I see it being difficult to have you know good resources, documentation, training available for people to actually know how to contribute to a project like that. Is that the case? Where where do I start? So we have a couple things to help get people started. We actually have a first contact SIG, which is a special interest group. And basically, if you have a question, we watch ask.openstack.org. We watch the mailing lists. And if people have questions, we try to answer them, welcome it in the community, and get them started. We also have activities such as OpenStack Upstream Institute, which is held the first day and a half before Summit. And that will help get you set up and 
do an initial patch and some other activities to teach you about OpenStack. And those are also held usually on one day at the various OpenStack or Open Infra days that are held around the world. We have the contributor portal, which tries to make it very visually easy for you to basically follow your own adventure to get started. Am I a developer? Am I a user? How do I want to contribute? So there's a lot of different activities we have. We have um, the long-term mentoring, which is cohort-based, so that the mentees can work together and help each other to reach their goals. And it's not just relying on a mentor to provide all the guidance. That is really thought out. All of that is 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 sounds like really great resources. And I guess my the question that it leads me to, and this is probably close to my last question, is... You've been involved now for quite a while. What is your favorite part? What is it that drives your passion to be involved with OpenStack for, for this long? The community. I love getting people started, whether it's through the Upstream Institute, so you've got people who are coming to Summit for their first time and want to learn, or whether it's just answering questions on a channel or on the mailing list, because we are a good community. We are a very welcoming community, and I think it shows. That's great. Well, aside from a ton of great resources at Linux Academy to learn about OpenStack, where else could people go to learn more about the project or anything else you want to share about OpenStack before we go? OpenStack.org website. Easy peasy. No problem right there. Well, Amy, thanks so much for coming on the program and helping clearing up some of my confusion around OpenStack. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode, but not yet. We've got one final thought. Yeah, this one is a war story from a sysadmin veteran, Rachel... Kroll. Kroll. And she writes, as the story goes, there was this web outfit that was designed around posting stories and videos about cooking stuff. People would get on there and would do all kinds of things to share with their families and their friends. Grandmothers would capture their recipes for kids to have, and kids would catch her themselves trying out the recipes. And then grandmothers would come back and watch the kids again and again. They just loved these videos, Wes. And it was a vibrant community. Lots of people posted to it, and it's been going on for a while. Unfortunately, as the company grew, someone decided to be a great idea. They copied Snapchat, Instagram, and everyone else who keeps adding these moments to their app. You know the ones I'm talking about, those little circles. They want you to record little little moments and share them with your friends. But of course, if you're going to start a system like this, you need some content. So they had to seed this new system somehow. Since after all, they wanted users to have something to see immediately when they launched it. But how did they do this? How could they seed this when it wasn't a live feature yet? Well, their brilliant idea was to make it so that every regular post would also create a shadow moment. That is, while the moments thing really hadn't launched yet, they'd have stuff feeding into it to get the system all figured out. All right, well, they got that going, it launched, and predictably it hung around for a bit and, well, didn't do too well. (laughs) Turns out that just copying the behaviors of 14-year-olds won't actually make you popular with 14-year-olds. And as these things go, they then decided, well, let's just shut it down. And as part of shutting it down, deleted all the moments from the database. They wanted it gone and not have to think about it like a bad memory. This is where things got a little interesting, but nobody realized why. Meanwhile, back on the main site, people's cooking videos had started to disappear. One here, one there, and then a bunch over there, and then a bunch more over there. And tons of people started complaining 
but nobody was taking them seriously. Even inside the company, the internal tech support was essentially gaslighting the employees who reported any problems by saying things like, that, it never existed. Even when the employee would swear up and down that the post did exist and that grandma used to watch it every week. Finally, someone who really gave a damn got their hands dirty and dug in and started unraveling what had really happened. That's when they found the smoking gun. It had turned out that back when the moments people had set up their fork of the data, they didn't really want to pay for storing all those recipe and cooking videos twice. You know, videos are big and space is expensive and they were feeling cheap. So instead of actually holding on to the videos again, they just added a pointer, a sim link, if you will, to the same video content that the posts were using. Seems pretty easy, right? Well, of course, the trouble is when the product bombed, they just deleted all of those moments, and that cleared out all of the associated media, <laughs> including the videos which were part of the actual posts. Amazingly, nobody figured that out for months, and long after any chance of recovering the data had passed. All of that stuff is gone forever, and it is never coming back. Sorry, Grandma. Somehow, this is not a story we've seen any coverage on until Rachel talked about it, but it's a great example of if you're going to take people's data, you need to take that seriously and actually have backups. Just work with a small subset of the data, guys. Just work with a small subset of it. If you've got a war story you'd like to share with the show, techsnap.system slash contact. That's also where you send your questions, topic ideas, feedback, and all that kinds of thing. Techsnap.system is also where we have links for subscribing. All the stuff we talked about today, it's all there on that fancy new site. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of TechSnap. And we will see you next week. Next week.